I am on a mission, rather a path to discovering the connections of the mind, body, and spirit as it's linked to social justice work. Particularly, I am interested in the spiritual aspect of social justice work. Each episode, I will talk with scholars in various fields who are committed to social justice and social change to learn more about how they see spirituality connected to the commitment of justice and change. I am your host, Dr. Valen S. Jordan, diversity and social justice educator, and this is 824. So welcome to this episode of 824. Today I will be speaking with Dr. Kevin Hallahan, Assistant Professor of Educational Foundations at Grand Valley State University. I am very excited to uh, have this conversation with you. We briefly met uh, for about five minutes uh, in Baltimore, and so it's great that we are having some time to catch up here and um, have a bit of time to talk. Yeah, I was uh, I was so pleasantly surprised when you reached out because I think I was the reason we only were able to have a five minute conversation in Baltimore. Uh, I had to rush off, but I was I was certainly intrigued by by the short amount of time we we spent together. So uh, thanks for thanks for getting in touch. Yeah, and um, I'm really excited to circle back to conversations of no self. <laughs> ah, right. <laughs> think about no self in relation to social justice work. Um, and so with that, I just uh, start this off by asking you, what is your work and what does it look like in the space of social justice, anti-oppression, social change, um, both within higher ed and the academy and outside of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm a professor uh, in the Department of Educational Foundations uh, at Grand Valley State University. Um, so I'm sure you and, and many of your listeners are familiar perhaps with the field of, of educational foundations. But when people ask me what that is, you know, I explain that in a nutshell, it's the uh, study of the history, philosophy, and sociology of education. Um, a lot of the work that I do with uh, undergraduates uh, who are preparing to be teachers is um, around exploring uh, issues of race, class, gender, uh, sexuality and sexual orientation, gender identity, religion, language, um, all of those social issues that that uh, overlap and intersect with um, what happens in schools, uh, who has access, who gets represented, who doesn't, um, questions like that. Um, so um, yeah, by and large, uh, I work with undergrads going into teaching and I teach uh, an introductory course um, on foundations of education uh, called Diverse Perspectives in Education. And then I also teach a, a capstone course for um, seniors who are completing their, their student teaching um, where, they're, where they're really getting a, a strong sense of, of what, what it looks like on the ground on a day-to-day -day basis in schools and kind of unpacking some of these issues related to identity um, and, and power and privilege and oppression and things of that nature. So that's what I that's what I do on on, on the day to day. Um, my work as a as a scholar and researcher has largely been focused on unpacking issues related to um, related to really uh, human beings, 
relations and relationships to one another and, and and how those are connected to our relationship to the kind of broader living world. Um, so this this area is what we've started to call kind of eco-critical perspectives in education. Um, so one, one, one aspect of that is kind of examining how schooling and education set us up to think about our relationship to the broader living world and, and really to the earth itself in particular ways. Um, and often uh, inculcate value hierarchies, both between human beings, but also, um, again, between humans and and what what we might call the non-human living world. So um, that's where a lot of my research uh, has been focused um, over the past several years. Um, and something that I tried to bring into conversation uh, in my teaching of pre-service teachers, but there aren't always a lot of opportunities to do that amongst all the other issues we have to talk about. Right. So um, I'm interested in how you have come to, and I'm, I'm basing this off of uh, your article, Breath by Breath, Reconsidering the Project of Critical Pedagogy Through the Lens of Zen Buddhist Thought and Practice. Mm. Really interested in understanding how you came to connecting the two. Because mm -hmm. I think in many ways for some who might be listening, who are um, in fields of social, uh, social justice education or do work within um, sort of the, within academia that sort of allow for them to think about critical pedagogy that they might not necessarily think about the connections of Zen Buddhism mm -hmm. to change or even that there is a connection in some ways to critical pedagogy and, and Zen Buddhist work. And so curious how you came to, to combining the two. Yeah, that's uh, that could probably turn into quite a long story. Um, but I will try to, uh, I'll try to cut to the chase. Um, I think that, well, I had been, um, I had been practicing Zen Buddhism uh, for Oh, probably close to a decade um, before I had that idea of connecting it with uh, work in in education and critical critical pedagogy in particular. Uh, but it was actually during graduate school when I was um, when I was first getting introduced to uh, critical theory and deconstruction. Um, you know, coming out of the work of of people like Derrida and and Foucault and um, and I started to really see these overlaps between some of the goals of, of Zen practice, which were, are, are in one sense is to kind of uh, transcend the, the dualistic um, consciousness that we most often use to make sense of the world um, and to have a more direct experience of reality. And these, these more academic, uh, um, discourses around um, deconstructing identity um, and really unpacking uh, the ways in which our, our, our social conditioning um, have us think about our relationship to one another and to the world around us in particular ways. Um, and I was also, I think, brought to, to that, to, to examine that connection 
um, because the the kind of the 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 dialectic between self transformation and social transformation was always something I was kind of fascinated by um, and and um, working to understand. And for a long time, I saw my my Buddhist practice as being on the side of of the self transformation and my work as an educator um, being on the side of social transformation. But you know, more and more these two are are very intimately related. So um, not to mention, you know, in that article, you know, I talk about some of the critiques that have been leveled against critical discourses and critical critical pedagogy in particular as being um, overly rationalistic, uh, ignoring um, the body and emotion and intuition um, as being a, a, a often a very masculine uh, discourse, and I saw Zen practice as being an antidote almost to some of those um, those gaps uh, that exist in or have existed in the field of critical pedagogy. So it was exploratory. I was encouraged by advisors uh, and others to to explore it, and eventually, yeah, the paper came out. The paper came out of it, and uh, I guess the rest is history. Yeah. So. Um... I've read it and I and I have a lot of questions for you. Sure. Not necessarily related to the article itself, but some of the things that um, that you that you bring up and that you theorize. And um, during a conference, and I don't know if you've ever been to Bergamo. Um, yeah, I spent student. spent a lot of years there. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So Bergamo is like second home when it comes to conferencing for me, and so. Um, at this past Bergamo conference, I had presented a paper on um, looking at yoga, spiritual practice of yoga, as a, a tool for anti-oppression work. And um, I, I talked a lot about dualities and how dualities create our suffering. Mm. And someone asked me, can we actually get past or move past dualism or ideas of duality? Mm. Um and I've been sitting with it since October. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I, I have yet to really come to an answer on that. And as I read your article and you talked about um, sort of the borders by which we define ourselves and that those borders, I'm assuming, are what create our suffering, right? Because in that, when we think about those borders, those borders are also in some ways the dualistic senses or the ways in which we create sort of a subject identity of ourselves. Right. Because um, there is no... There is no I, right? Our, our concepts of I are socially constructed. Our concepts of who we are have been socially constructed. And um, and so I'm just going to leave it at that and, and let you sort of teach us a bit more as to what it means to transcend dualities and what that looks like um, in terms of social justice work. Because I think there's also something to having to respond to the physical realities of this world. Um which do, I guess, in some way require us to be reminded of our social constructions of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, wow. There's a lot there. It's it's uh, it's ironic, I guess, um, because where I I first presented that paper before it was uh, before it was published at Bergamo. So that's kind of funny um, connection <laughs> there. <laughs> that was that was many years ago, though. Um, anyhow, uh, so. Regarding the question, can we, is it, is it possible to transcend uh, 
dualism or dualistic thinking. So um, I, I want to just make make a point here before we continue and say that that I am not a um, I'm kind of a I'm a, a ordained but lay ordained uh, Buddhist. Um, I'm not I'm not a certified teacher. Uh, Zen in particular is always taken very seriously. Um, it's it's lineage. Um, so I will just kind of for the record say that I'm not I'm not in a position to to teach others necessarily or to guide others in their own spiritual practice, but just to maybe speak from my own experience. Um, and one of the uh, one of the pieces of feedback that came out of that that paper from from the Buddhist perspective, because I did share it with uh, my Zen teacher at that time um, to get his take on it. And uh, one of the ideas that came out was first, we can't expect to have this experience of uh, of no self um, or transcending the dualism without without serious and sustained practice. Um, so it's fine and almost inevitable that these things be talked about on an intellectual level. But when at the end of the day, uh, from the Zen perspective, outside of some very rare instances, one cannot come to this realization without, again, sustained practice of meditation primarily. Um, the other thing to mention is uh, maybe maybe describing it as transcending dualism is is uh, misleading um, because I think again from the Zen perspective <laughs> it's um, the unity and interdependence of all things is one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is the absolute uh, uh, uniqueness of of all of all that exists. Um, so it's not a matter of moving from seeing the world from the perspective of dualism into seeing the world from the perspective of unity and interdependence, but being able to kind of go back and forth between the two in a way that is um, fluid and appropriate to the situation. Uh, so does interdependence give us opportunity to um, work to diminish our ego in some ways? Absolutely. I mean, I think, um, I think, you know, thinking about it in terms of, in, in the terms I, that I put it forward in the paper, critical pedagogy provides um some tools and frameworks for working to minimize um, oppression and, and domination uh, of one group uh, by another. Um, but um, developing and, and kind of cultivating this, um, this deep empathy uh, for, for, um, for others is is really more the, the approach of, uh, of, of Buddhist practice. Um, so, so in recognizing, and when I say recognizing, I mean on a very deep personal experiential level that you are really not other than me. Um, 
my motives for wanting to to help you and minimize your suffering um, are different than they would be if I'm just on an intellectual level thinking, um, you know, you could use a hand. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but so so to answer your question, yeah, I think the the recognition of interdependence um, can certainly further our work as uh, as anti-oppressive and anti-oppression educators. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I, and I could have my terminology all sort of mixed up here, but is interdependence and interconnectedness or notions of interbeing all similar? Or do they have the same meaning or do they have different meanings when we're thinking about um, sort of what it means to understand humanity and human suffering? And I ask this, um, so yes, earlier this week, I had an interview with David Robinson Morris, who does work think, uh, with Ubuntu and Buddhism and mm. higher ed. Mm. And he and I were talking about um, concepts of death and experiences of, of little deaths that happen daily. Mm-hmm. And also we engaged in an understanding or a conversation about interconnectedness and what it means to be communal. Um, um, so I, I, I will... Uh, speak to that from the from a Zen Buddhist perspective. Um, really, one of this the central. I'm I'm reluctant to call it a concept, but really it, it is a concept um, that points to an experience is the recognition of uh, of emptiness. Um, really, that nothing in the phenomenal universe has a has a a stable or or um enduring essence um that all things are constantly uh changing um as a result of a myriad of other things and and so we can't find interdependence in that sense might be might be misleading because it suggests that um, there is something enduring, uh, but from the Buddhist perspective, that's that's not that's not necessarily the case. So we want to. So maybe impermanence. Your question was around interdependence and interbeing. Um, I'm 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 thinking this through. Um, bear with me. Um, and again, it could just be my like um, incorrect use of the word interbeing because I th- I think in some ways, and my limited knowledge to this is that I think about interbeing as interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. Those two might be very different mm-hmm. too. I would say um, I think f- from 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 the perspective that I'm talking about these things, they they are they are if not, if not synonymous, definitely very closely related to one another. Um, because it's not just that, you know, um, I, that, that, that all that is all, all that is around me, including, including my human relationships, but really everything else, um, it, um, 
is in some ways responsible for my existence, but also that, that we, uh, that there is a certain unity to that also. So if, if everything is intimately interdependent, then in some sense, it also is, um, in, in a state of interbeing, you know, that there is, that there is a unity, there is a, um, there is a kind of a, 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 a coexistence, um, that is happening that we often, that we often miss or, or are blinded to by, um, by the, the delusions that we're, that we're conditioned with. Mm -hmm. So as you were saying that, um, I was intrigued by, or maybe not so much intrigued as I am interested in how you, you use this. Cause I'm assuming in some ways that this is, is part and parcel to your life, right? Like it's, it's in there with you. You're moving with it on a day to day. You're taking it with you as you're going in the teacher courses. And so, um, do you ever in any ways feel a challenge or a poke to that, particularly when you were teaching courses related to race, class, gender, sexuality, and all of the ways in which it, we have been teaching uh, notions of that, which have been sort of rooted and, and defined through our understandings of social constructions? So um, are you... Are you... Are, are you thinking about that that poke or that that troubling coming from the perspective of those who say if we ignore um, if we ignore difference or only focus on this notion of of oneness or interdependence then we're missing something or are you thinking okay yes yep um, because I think sometimes um, as folks hear this um, and this is from my own experience with presenting my work that is around notions of suffering and how we come to understand mm -hmm. this, that there has been the, the pushback that it sounds like colorblind mm -hmm. or um, sort of heterosexist blind ideology, right? right? That, um, and in some ways, I think I can see that how someone who has been sort of engaged with and ingrained and in sort of <laughs> studying the critical theories, right? Critical race theory, mm -hmm. black feminist thought, fear theory, so on and so forth, that um, hearing this, right, might feel disruptive, um, disruptive to them in that um, it, it's, a, it's a new framing, right? Like it's a new way of trying to think through or even conceptualize notions of no self, <laughs> there is mm -hmm. no I, things are all fa false mm -hmm. in some ways. Um, so curious yeah absolutely i think that that is um a legitimate concern i think uh that's a that's a critique that i would that i would surely take seriously but it's one of you know as i kind of alluded to earlier it's one of the things that i found one of the aspects of of buddhism and zen in particular to be really beautiful and helpful is that it doesn't minimize even though we're, we're trying to um come to this recognition of uh 
of emptiness, um, we don't ignore the fact that there is, you know, so, so here's the best way to describe it. Um, one of the unique contributions of, of Zen Buddhism has been to put forward the notion that um, nirvana is samsara and samsara is nirvana. In other words, samsara points to the Buddhist notion of um, being caught in the cycle of, of birth and death and, and suffering. Um, and we can think about that in terms of, you know, the actual, our, our actual birth and death. But as you, as you kind of mentioned earlier, that the, the, all the different ways that we are born and die over the course of our lives, right. Being caught in this cycle of, of craving and having our cravings, um, go unfulfilled and, and, and then searching for other ways to fill those up. That's, that's samsara. Nirvana, obviously, um, or maybe not so obviously, it points to kind of this this state of of being that we're kind of um, reaching for through our practice, where we are able to transcend that suffering, and we're able to um, detach ourselves from the cycle of birth and death. But you know, um, Zen practitioners over the course of millennia looked at this relationship and saw it as just another duality, nirvana and samsara. And they put forward this idea that actually they're one in the same, um, that we are not looking to escape anything, um, that actually uh, being fully present and one with the moment is in and of itself nirvana. So I guess what I'm getting at is we don't we, we don't ignore the difference. We don't, or differences or, or, or the suffering or the hierarchies or any of the things that, that, um, exist in and of this world. Um, this is really a practice about being able to respond to those things in a way that is not, um, egocentric, um, or coming out of, um, motives of self, self, uh, aggrandizement. <laughs> I'm not sure, you know, if, 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 if I'm making sense, but, um, I think what it, what it may help with is, is getting around, um, efforts to minimize suffering and oppression that are, that are motivated by really re, re, um, reifying our sense of self because we're doing it from a place of, of, of no self. So I'm not sure if that's helpful or just for further confusing the matter. <laughs> um, I think it is helpful um, in some ways to recognize um, like what it means to come back to mm. our true self. Is that, do I have that right? Because I, in some ways, and I guess that's self with a capital S rather than self with a lowercase s, right? And the self with the lowercase s, um, and and this has just been my conception of it, is what has been out there sort of functioning in the world through sort of our ego, which responds to fear, threat, and loss, and um and all of the other ways in which we sort of function to survive and again pulling from sort of social mm -hmm. constructions of things and um 
recognizing sort of capital S of ourselves um, and working to be in engagement with that and recognize the that self in this place and how, um, and again, maybe I could be sort of misinterpreting this, but how we work to um, utilize that to one, recognize suffering and that suffering is what, what connects us and as humans, right? Or as living beings that we recognize suffering, we know that we all experience it and that in sort of reifying the self that we're able to be in better dialogue about that. Did I synthesize that right? Or did I just jumble? Yeah, I, 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 that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think, um, I think that's accurate. My, my mind, um, <laughs> inevitably my, my mind was just kind of beginning to, to wander because I'm thinking through these, these questions that, that you're posing. I think they're, they're wonderful. They're wonderful questions to consider. Um, one thing that, that, I, I found myself thinking about was um, there is a, uh, a Zen teacher, uh, an American Zen teacher named John Dido Laurie, uh, who was the abbot of uh, Zen Mountain Monastery in upstate New York, um, had a long uh, teaching career um, as an American American Zen teacher. And, and one quote that I often come back to uh, of his is, you know, what he says is, is this practice um, is really about taking responsibility for the whole catastrophe. And what I think he me means or meant by that is um, we're, regardless of, uh, uh, of the, the issue that we're, that we're looking at, we're not simply placing blame um, or, or exempting ourselves from, from the the suffering that is happening but really kind of taking full responsibility for it i was also reminded of another conversation that i had recently with my own teacher um and what we were talking about was uh climate change a species extinction the collapse of ecosystems, all of the ecological issues that that are often at the forefront of my mind. Um, and I said to him something to the effect of uh, some people um, are more responsible for this than others. And he cut me off almost before I was finished with the sentence and said, no, that's the wrong, the wrong way to think about this. And he didn't really elaborate, but he kind of left me to, to sit with that. Um, and I think um, it's also somehow <laughs> related to what we're talking about right now. Yeah, so, and, and as you were sharing both of those, I was thinking about um, Martin Buber's concepts of mm -hmm. I-thou relationship. Um, right, that um, I mean, each person is concerned with the other, and then also the um, Martin Luther King Jr. quote that whatever affects one directly mm -hmm. affects all indirectly. Um, and so I think that that does leave me with this idea about sort of indirect responsibility mm -hmm. for a whole catastrophe. 
Um, and, and also recognizing the ways in which like, so what is our role in that, right? Like how do we sort of individually but collectively begin to recognize what our role in that is and how we move forward? Because I think that um, that's the large part of what is missing within sort of our social justice work, social change work. Um, you know, people are committed to different pockets of it and doing the work in there, but at the same time, they're seems to be a, a one, a lack of dialogue that happens within the self about like, I need to change something within me if I'm expecting something to change outside of me. And then also um, sort of grappling with the, the understanding that indirectly we are all responsible for what, what's happening. Right. And I think again, um, the, the work on the self and the work on, on the social are not, are not in any way mutually exclusive. In other words, we don't need to engage in one before we can engage in the other. Um, but I do think engaging in the, in the self work is vitally important to um, engaging in meaningful ways in, in the social work, in the social uh, transformation work. Um, so, um, how do you find yourself doing that? Because I know for many people who are listening, most of the listeners at this point are, uh, folks who practice, who practice yoga and, um, and, and some who are, who are scholars within the field of social justice. And so I'm curious as to, um, how you, how do you see the work of self-reflexivity, right? So more than just the reflection and more than just the contemplation, but the work of self-reflexivity and then also the work of doing within the social. Hmm. It's a good question. I'm, I'm also, I'm brought back to um, uh, the question you raised earlier about, you know, how this probably inevitably influences my, my approach to teaching and work with work with pre-service teachers Um you know, I maybe there was a time when I would make those connections more explicit um, for my students, but I don't do that so much anymore. And, you know, for example, I, I never I never come into a class and say, um, you know, uh, all is empty. So therefore, we don't really have to worry about it. But here, here's here's what we need to talk about, you know, uh, <laughs> and I also I've learned um I used to be, I, I feel like, uh, I'm not sure what the right term is, but I was an active, let's put it this way. I was an active proponent of, of Zen, uh, Zen practice. Um, and I've learned over the years that, you know, um, by and large people need to come to this, uh, on their own and not, not not because they've been they've been poked or prodded by somebody else now you can that's not to say i'm not willing to share with others um this this part of my life um but i'm certainly not going to you know uh like actively try to get them involved um so so they are to some extent you know kept i try to keep each in their own lane um on a personal level, I, I know that they, that they're related and intersect with one another. 
Um, but I don't explicitly make those connections for people who aren't themselves curious about it. Um, that being said, you know, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I've, I lost the question, which is which was around how I connect the two or how I put the two into practice. Yeah, how do we start to think about the practice of self-reflexivity um, with doing mm -hmm. the, the work out in the social, right? And so you mentioned them not being mutually exclusive. And so I'm curious as to um, how you see yourself doing that work, maybe even how you engage others in doing that work. Um, cause in my, the courses that I teach, which are very similar to yours, both at the undergraduate and graduate level that I, I find myself mm, looking for both pre-service and in-service teachers to do a lot more self-reflexive, mm -hmm. um, practice. Um, because for me, I don't see those two as, um, like I, I don't see how the work of, of being a great educator can happen without doing that self-reflexive work of understanding sort of how your uh, different points of identity right. show up in your classroom, right? Because um, we know what they do. And so how do we take time to actually be, be responsive to those and understand those and then also be willing to disrupt uh, sort mm. of the resistances that exist? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I agree entirely that 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 self-reflexive work is is incredibly important if we really want teachers to be actively and, and meaningfully engaged in in anti-oppressive uh, education. Um, but like the I, I struggle with this and I'm, I'm just going to be honest here, I struggle with how much we can do as educators to move people to that space of critical self reflection and interrogation um, and how much needs to come as a result of, I don't know what, uh, uh, an experience of injustice, um, seeing someone they love or care about treated unfairly. You know, this is, this is going back to that, to that tension between, the self and the social, um, I, I've, I've often wondered, you know, what is it exactly that makes certain people critical and others less so, you know, and like, is there, is there an ingredient? Um, is there, is there a formula? Is there, is there some, some common denominator for these? Um, I, I, and I, and I also re related to that, I think, um, I think intellectual self-reflexivity is important and has a role, but I'm not sure. I, I honestly feel like that only goes so far. I feel like you have to have some type of, of contemplative practice to really kind of take that deconstruction of the self uh, to the next level, for lack of a better way of saying it. Um, and I, I don't think it's necessarily limited to, to meditation though. I, though I do know that ha has one of the longest and, and richest histories of, of the, the contemplative practices that we know of. Um, so yeah, this is, this is a tough one. I mean, I, I, I engage the, the students that I work with, uh, all the time in, 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 in self-reflection and kind of unpacking, their hidden assumptions and biases and um 
I just wonder how how deep that goes without their their own kind of initiative and then also um aided by some other form of of practice mm -hmm. so do you see contemplation and meditation as the same thing or are they different? um well i i certainly see uh zen meditation uh as a as, as a particular form of contemplative or meditative practice, but it's unique for sure. Um, uh, I, I lead a, uh, I lead a meditation group here in, in Michigan where I live. Uh, it's just kind of an introduction to, to Zen practice and, um, people hear Zen and they hear meditation and they have, they have pretty specific ideas about what that means. They don't realize that a, it's physically demanding, uh, just to sit and hold oneself up for an extended period of time and be that it's anything but comfortable and calming, at least initially, um, you're dealing not only with, um, kind of the noise in your body, but also the noise in your mind. Um, and so that's why, frankly, a lot of people don't, don't stick with it for very long because it's, it's not what they're imagining. So, um, to go back to your question, I think it falls under the umbrella of contemplative practices, but it has a very specific form. Okay, so I'm glad that mm -hmm. you shared what you just did about Zen meditation, um, because, and so just follow, yeah, yeah. <laughs> follow my, my crazy here. <laughs> this idea of Zen meditation mm -hmm. not necessarily being comfortable, right? And first started out, um, it seemed a bit painful, and as you said, sort of dealing with the noise in your body and in your mind, right? And so people don't stick with it. Um, and the first thing I thought was, so this is in some ways very similar, I think, to what happens when folks shut down when it comes to um, engaging in the hard work that's mm -hmm. sort of rooted within diversity education, social justice education, right? Because um, it, it's uncomfortable, right? Like to, to sit, to hear all of these things with regards to um, sort of a structural oppression, the function of systems, mm -hmm. privilege, all of these things. And so this, in some ways you're dealing with the noise in your body and your mind, and then you shut down and then that's it. Right. Like, um, and so for some, it takes a really long time for them to, to get back to it, to, to even attempt it. Um, and then others maybe never, ever come back to it. And um, all sorts of things around blaming and shaming start to come up. Um, and so in some ways I see them as analogous, right? Like just the, the very act of, mm. of starting a Zen meditation, right? So maybe necessarily the, the meditation portion, but the actual having to sit, um, the discomfort that you might feel in your body. And as you talked about, sort of the noise in your body and mind, um, I see that there is a lot of sort of, of connection in that that I think is sort of articulated mm. correctly and sort of put together that folks would be able to see how that, how this sort of 
is a challenge within doing the social justice. Yes, work. absolutely. And, and honestly, I, I've never thought about it in, in exactly those terms, but I, but I love the analogy. I think it's, it, 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 it describes, it describes it perfectly, you know, maybe it doesn't, doesn't capture all of the, the resistances that, that people encounter when they, when they do engage with, um, uh, with discourses around issues of social justice, but, but by and large, I think you're right. In fact, um, I just finished reading uh, the book White White Fragility, um, and engaged in a book club discussion around it at, at work. It was with other faculty in my college, um, and thinking back on on what the author describes in that book, I think there there are very there are a lot of similarities between um, the the defensiveness and the resistances that come up when confronted with um, our, our implication in, in the racist systems that we, that we live within and, and those that come up when we have to sit with our, sit with ourselves quietly for, for an extended period of time. So that's a, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Um, um and so I'm curious how you see possibly the, uh, the connection mm. then of mind, body, spirit work. When we talk about how we are, I guess, engaging with uncomfortable discourses. Yeah. Right. And, I, and also keeping in mind as I, you know, sharing this, right. Like that they're not separate mm -hmm. pieces, right. Like it, they're all one. Um, and so how do we sort of remain in alignment is something that has uh, been sort of creeping up for me often is how do I stay in alignment um, while also engaging in the difficult discourses um, and teaching the difficult discourses, right? Because in a lot of ways, you don't want to bypass and you don't want to sort of... Um, sort of not remain in integrity. And so I think there is, um, I have yet, I'm, I'm not fully, fully put together as to what the connections of mind, body, spirit work is to yeah. social justice work or to difficult discourses with regard to social justice work. But um, the more and more I have these conversations, the more I'm learning from the people that I talk with that, um, mm. Mm -hmm. we're all on to something <laughs> that is we're all on to it um with regards to sort of the pieces of mind body spirit work spiritual development work and doing these yeah i'm 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 with you 100 percent. i mean um again i i don't claim to have any of this figured out by any stretch um but i think there's there there are lots of reasons to think that we're onto something. A couple of things that came to mind as, as you were sharing. Um, one is that uh, I've also, I've heard Zen practice described as a psychophysical practice. In other words, we, the, this idea of, of dualisms and I, the I and the other, and um, uh, the illusion of a permanent self. I mean, these all sound pretty abstract and pretty intellectual, but I think from the Zen perspective, uh, we carry a tremendous amount of this in our bodies. 
Um, and I think that that there is a there's a similar thing or there's a similar process at play when we talk about oppression and when we talk about um, when we talk about domination. Um, you know, it, I, I'm I'm brought back to to Robin D'Angelo's book. You know, she we we carry the history of of racism in not only our 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 minds and our subconscious, but also in our bodies, and and we react to things with our bodies. And that's actually that's another one of the points that I was trying to make in that in that paper was oftentimes uh, critical discourses just don't pay attention to that stuff. Um, in other words, don't pay attention to the, to the bodily, physical aspect of all of this. Um, something else that I was, that I was thinking about was, um, I, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. No, you're fine. And so, um, this, this is interesting as you talk about it being carried in our bodies. So. Um, as I was interviewing Beth Barilla, she talked a lot about sort of mm. how healing has to happen from the inside out, right? That um, our understandings of systems of oppression are not just political or intellectual, but they're generational, right? And that we have been, that we carry these, these roots around with us. And that if we are looking to sort of uh, resolve in some ways, that there needs to be a healing that happens from the inside out, right? And that our mind, body, spirit practices mm -hmm. are parts of embodied learning and and relearning. Um, and so I find it, so it's it's interesting that you made that connection without even yeah. hearing the podcast yet because it hasn't been released that, that we have sort of, that we carry around these histories in our bodies and that we, when we're engaged in a Zen meditation practice, um, possibly that we are able to to recognize that to connect with that to notice that um as a way of sort of unearthing what has been what hasn't yet been uncovered right and um and in doing that uncovering we're able to make some greater right bigger yeah yeah and that, that brings me us. back to, to the thought i i had but lost there a moment ago which is you know um in in following following along with with the analogy between engaging in, in difficult uh, or critical discourses and engaging in a um, mental, bodily, spiritual practice, you know, some of the resistance comes up um, physically and in our bodies uh, when we when we sit in meditation. Um, but surely uh, many of the other resistances that that come up are, are mental and psychological. Um, and part of the practice, at right. least from the Zen, the Zen perspective is to, is to recognize those, but not necessarily to either, um, give ourselves over to them completely. In other words, to, to begin to believe what, what our, uh, what our dualistic consciousness is, is telling us, but also not to try to fight it and try to push it down and try to try to ignore it, but rather to be comfortable observing it. Um, and, and I'm thinking about that in relationship to engage, engaging in, in difficult dialogues. Um, you know, I think the tendency often is to find a way to avoid it. 
whether that is physically avoiding it or, or mentally and kind of psychologically avoiding it, coming up with reasons to just not be present with it. Um, again, you know, I, I hate to keep making this, uh, making this reference, but, um, you know, in thinking about white fragility and, and the difficulty white people have in engaging in conversations about race, part of that seems to me just the fear of, of being, of being with those conversations and truly listening. There's a tendency to want to fill up the space with, with our own justifications for, for things or our own blame game or that sort of thing. And, um, you know, again, that's just, just something that, that, uh, that comes to mind as, as we're talking about this. Yeah. And, um, as you say that I'm, I'm brought to thinking about, I don't know if you've read any of these, but Carl Jung's, uh, seminars on Kundalini yoga, um, and so I've just started reading some of this work, but he he talks about that our sort of discriminatory or discrimination of separateness of bodies isn't so much rooted mm. in fear as it is it's rooted in hatred and that that hatred being sort of the opposite to to love and that that hatred comes from a resistance to um, sort of recognizing the mirroring mm. of the self but not wanting that mirroring to be there. So it's just interesting to think about sort of from a, again, from this like psychoanalysis, right. Carl Jung's work on Kundalini yoga. Um, and again, I'm, I've just started to dabble in it, but it's very interesting to sort of see how, um, how he talks about the way in which discrimination or separateness of bodies um, is rooted mm. more in notions of. I think that's fascinating. I'm not, I'm not familiar with those, those lectures, um, but I have uh, written in other places about um got kind of from the perspective of, of psychoanalysis rather than Zen, uh, even though the connections between those two have been made in the past and other people's work. Um, and, and the, the often unconscious, um, responses we have to suffering and oppression, our implication in, in, in those, in those systems, uh, and structures, um, often related to, to our own, our own histories and things of that nature. I'm also reminded, I was listening to another podcast recently, um, where the, the interviewer made a really interesting observation, uh, in saying that, um, homophobia, for example, the, the, uh, the roots of that, of that term are, uh, fear of the, of sameness. Um, and he related that to, to bodies and, and talked about that specifically in relationship to, to men uh, and boys, in fact, and how that, that hatred of sameness, mm -hmm. we, we, we externalize that. And if, through homophobia, um, by having a, uh, a real aversion to, to the male body, but then that, that inevitably also translates back to our own bodies and kind of a hatred of our own bodies, because that's what we're taught to kind of be repulsed by. So I thought that that's another, uh, another connection here to, to, to our conversation. Yeah. I'm going to end this with just asking you um, a few words mm -hmm. for you to sort of define and tell me how you think about them. Uh, I'm through this, the, our time together, sort of exploring notions of mind, body, spirit, maybe not necessarily concretely, but we have talked a lot about um, 
sort of understandings of how we get to a better place of of seeing and understanding and knowing what social justice work looks like from a Zen Buddhist perspective, but also understanding it from a critical pedagogy perspective and how do we um, engage in a process that allows for there to be more uh, unique dialogue that allows for us to move mm-hmm. uh, move the needle uh, a bit more when we're thinking about this. And so I'm curious as to how you define the word transformation. Uh, transformation, the, uh, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is, is, is coming back home and, and healing. I would define healing as um, recognizing again our wholeness and completeness. Mm. Yeah, that's um, recognizing again. I love that because, and it also makes me think of the word respect um, at, and meaning to see again. Right. Like if we just sort of right. break it down between re-inspect to see again. And so I see, yeah, that's, that's beautifully said, recognizing again. Mm. How would you define liberation? Um, and so an interesting sort of quote with this as I, that might be helpful, um, comes from bell hooks and that, and I'm not going to paraphrase the quote in which she sort of talks about that if we are to, um, be responsive to notions of domination or supremacy or oppression, that it's the the oppressor within that we must respond to if we are to experience any sense of liberation. Um, and I take that to mean sort of understanding all of the roots, right. As we just talk, sort of talked about all the things that we sort of carry around that keep us from notions yeah. of healing. You know, the, the liberation is um, there are, uh, th- th- this transcends applies to all schools of Buddhism. There are the four bodhisattva vows. And the first bodhisattva vow is uh, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. And really the idea there is um, I cannot be saved or liberated until all are saved or liberated. So our our fate is always uh, inextricably mm-hmm. interrelated and interconnected. And with that, um, I think that's how we will end our conversation because I think that is beautifully said um, that our our fate is is connected yeah. to that of of someone else, right? The the other lowercase o. Um, yeah, this was uh, this was really so this was really wonderful. Time. I enjoyed talking with you and the ideas um, the ideas that you shared. So uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of 824. If you would like to listen to this episode or other episodes again, you can find 824 on Apple iTunes, Anchor, or Spotify. Your listener support is much appreciated, and if you would like to donate to the continued creation and development of this podcast, you can 
choose to donate through Anchor. Thank you again for listening, and until next time.